Hello, hello. Welcome to the studio of Elvis Gleason. I'm your host of Be Knock After Hours, where I jump into the private lives of our public figures. So, kick back with the beverage of your choice, because we're about to go into the show. Eve Walker is the president of the ANU Postgraduate and Research Students Association, or as it's commonly called, PASA. The association is the political body for postgraduate students at the ANU and works with a budget of over a million dollars. She has been in the role since October 2020 and will soon be wrapping up her term. Eve, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Elvis. Yeah, easy, easy. So I think um, for people who aren't necessarily ANU students, they won't really know what PASA does. Uh, in your own words, would you be able to give uh, perhaps viewers who don't know much about PARSA a, a short summary of the organization? Yep. So uh, PARSA is the peak representative body for postgraduate students. That includes master's and PhD students, uh, but also uh, short courses and diplomas. Um, we tend to focus a lot on advocacy work, community building, and uh, tenants such as transparency and sustainability. Uh, community building is social events. Um, uh, programs such as CIF uh, and advocacy is more about uh, student representation. So we sit on uh, several committees um, and also run advocacy campaigns, uh, such as ones that focus uh, on workers' rights, sexual assault, etc. Thanks for that answer, Eve. And so with your journey into the president of PASA, could you tell me, I suppose, starting at that whole election cycle, what that experience was like for you? If I'd be interested in running for president? At the time, I didn't realize that all previous presidents had kind of selected uh, who they wanted to be their successor and had helped organize their team. Um, and that was a start, like generally there'd be a several month lead up to that. Um, I was uncertain about it. I actually didn't realize that the president was a paid position and I didn't think I could take on a full time role while studying without uh, uh, being remunerated because I have to support myself. Um, I eventually realized that um, we're provided with an honoraria um, or a stipend and that'd be okay. Um, but he wanted me to be the uh, college, sorry, the education officer. Um, generally the way uh, we fill vacancies is uh, there's a panel um, of people. So generally two members of the PRC and a board member um, and people file applications and they go through an interview process. Um, because several members of the PRC were aware of the fact that I was going to run for president and help organize a ticket myself, um, the previous president asked, um, at the time, the HDR officer who wanted to be the education officer to retract their application, so it would be a less competitive process for me. I didn't realize that it occurred. I found it afterwards. And a similar thing apparently happened with the equity officer's role. So it was this idea um, that, I guess, people who would run for the next team or for the next year would um, kind of have an advantage because they'd already have executive experience and they'd also be a lot more visible. Um, and then we went into elections. I think PARS has traditionally struggled at least in the last few years with uh, really representing international on-campus students well, but not necessarily the entire uh, cohort of postgraduate students. Um, I found that a lot of domestic students were really disengaged and they thought that ANUSA was their representative body. And I also thought that we needed to provide, uh, I guess, avenues of engagement that were more relevant to off-campus students as well. Noting my bias because I am an off-campus domestic student. But if you look at like uh, the people who are representatives, there's a heavy lean, partially because it's easier to get on-campus students to vote in elections. It very much sounds like when you're describing that whole election process and how people get put into these 
positions, I, I'm almost sensing this tension between the democratic nature of the, the roles, but also how much those roles are, are pre-decided by uh, people who are already in that, that parser sphere. Do you think that uh, tension played out in perhaps some of the, the controversies that you experienced during your presidency? I mean, I was told during the governance dispute, which we can talk about later, that I should feel uh, thankful that I was chosen and that I was so publicly supported. Um, I personally think that uh, I, along with my uh, colleagues, put together a ticket and we spent a lot of time thinking about what we wanted to campaign for. Um, so uh, while I do appreciate the assistance uh, that, you know, members of the board granted us, I also don't think that um, that should undermine what current students want. Um, and also, like, during the election process, it was quite frustrating because, uh, you know, democratic elections, especially in student politics, aren't necessarily about who has the best ideas. It's about who, it's a popularity contest. It's about who knows the most people. So I was finding, um, during my time with Parsa, the person who decided to run a ticket against me, it wasn't the president of the team, it was someone else, uh, originally had wanted to be equity officer, and then uh, had decided that um, because I wasn't comfortable having just an all-male executive besides myself that um, I should just be women's officer if I cared so much about gender equity and my gender has come up consistently throughout this process as well um, so it, trying to lean away from this culture of you know uh, politics being about or student politics being about how it assists us as individuals rather than uh, our membership has been something that we've really tried to focus on, but um, it also takes time to really uh, achieve organizational change. Yeah, yeah. And, and looking at that topic of organizational change, then, uh, I, I suppose the governance issue, uh, which uh, I'd invite you to go into now, is perhaps one of the, the biggest organizational changes that, that PASRA has had in its, in its recent history, uh, I suppose, since the, the board was established in 2017. Uh, for those viewers who might not know about uh, the governance issue and uh, a lot of those difficulties you had there, could you tell us a, a bit of a story of, of what happened and, and what that was like for you? Yeah, um, to give you a bit of context, as you said, the board was established in 2017. The um, president at the time um, was graduating, and I think it was her understanding that there was too much power that had been um, the, like there's too much executive power that the president held. She wanted to strip that away from the president and put that in the board, specifically uh, in the board, in the board chair. Um, that's a model that has been copied by uh, another association, CAFA, um, which has had a similar governance dispute this year. Um, she then proceeded to go become the chair of the board and then oversaw the president uh, of that year. Um, I guess the two main issues that have really come up during uh, the first few months, so this would have been between October and December, were uh, ones related to uh, honorary regulations and financial investments. So basically, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm a postgraduate law student, I'm graduating this semester. Uh, during that uh, semester, this is semester two, 2021, I'd taken a class on income tax law. Um, and one of the things that had been covered uh, was basically what is accessible income and whether and like what is honoraria. So um, the way a lot of associations work, uh, I think a news included, but uh, parse as an example, is that um, for college representatives, um, we provide people with uh, honoraria. So an honoraria is kind of gift for service. It can't be aligned with any of your vocational skills and it's supposed to be non-taxable. 
Um, I was looking through some of the documents that were being drafted at the time. Um, the previous chair in particular uh, wanted to try and limit the employee-employer relationship between PARSA PRC members and uh, the association. The issue is though, um, in employment law, you can't just say someone's not an employee and then uh, you know, forgo any liability you may have. Um, we weren't having people sign indemnity clauses and it, they were drafting policies that just didn't make any sense. And I just like, personally, I couldn't put my name to something that uh, wasn't valid. So an example would be, they wanted to put uh, the president on an honorary, which would mean that in my case, I'd make $45,000 a year that's non-taxable. Obviously I'm working 35 hours a week and I've set expectations. You know, not great um, having that liability, but then if you look at how that would affect international students, so let's say um, uh, our course officer. Uh, if they're working, I think it's 14 hours a week um, now, and they're being paid $25 uh, an hour, it's around $18,500 a year. Um, if they didn't end up paying their tax uh, and they were unable to, I mean, that could be a real issue when it came to uh, their migration status. And if they want to become a permanent resident or anything like that, uh, they could be potentially deported from the country. Um, I didn't feel comfortable uh, opening up uh, my colleagues to that liability. And every time I'd mention these issues and try and raise them uh, at an executive level uh, during board meetings, I basically was told that uh, I couldn't seek external legal advice um, and that I was wrong. Um, I checked it by some, like uh, our college of law representative, uh, the HDR one was my tutor for income tax law. She has worked for the ATO for 30 years. Um, she also thought it was problematic, as did a lot of people. Um, so that was one thing. Eventually, uh, during a planning day session, uh, I realized the only way I could get the board to potentially listen to me was to ask them to put it as an agenda item and then present it to the PRC. Uh, prior to that meeting, I sent through the document and highlighted sections I was concerned about for everyone to make sure that they're on the same page and have the ability to review it, because I sometimes find if you send through documents, people don't review them in uh, as fine detail as they should. And it was quite messy. So the board decided to uh, wait until we sought legal advice and um, uh, then proceed with that documentation. Um, the legal advice we uh, sought uh, was not great. It basically said, yes, there's an employee-employee relationship. Uh, depending on how what level you categorize people at uh, working on, um, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of liability, depending on what the statute of limitations is for uh, claims like this. I think it's five or six years. Um, so during that time as well, uh, the chair of the board wanted to um, invest um, money. This is, I think, from pre-2016, pre-2017, um, because uh, prior to that, the university had a different uh, SAP agreement, where now if we have unspent funds, we have to either apply for a rollover or give it back to the university. We didn't have that prior uh, to yeah, 2017. So um, we had a large pool of funds that you could spend on alcohol, but also that was just sitting there not doing anything. Um, interest rates are low because of COVID and the financial sector uh, staying afloat. Um, so uh, they wanted to invest it, but um, I was concerned, A, with none of us having a financial background uh, and B, with this huge liability we potentially had with the honorarius situation um, about investing all of our funds, potentially some of which we don't have legal title to because um, uh, we hadn't done the uh, 
forensically analyzed our finances at that point. Um, and uh, I think that's probably what got the most amount of kickback. Also, the uh, the organization we wanted to use, the wealth management firm, for uh, investing those funds seemed... Um, I mean, I think they'd Phoenix three times in the last decade, I found out later on when I looked at their ABN. Um, so it just didn't seem like a very prudent um, choice. But I found in a lot of these conversations, um, because people were very sure of themselves, and it also had had uh, half the board resign pri previously in like 2021 because they'd had interpersonal issues. And then they'd gone out and selected other board members who they directly told me they liked because they'd sit there and vote the way they wanted, that no one was willing to question the decisions we were making, which in my mind, I was liable for. And I was told that even if um, I voted against things, um, I would still be lot and like, and I tried to do everything uh, I could to ensure that we were compliant, I would still remain liable, which is why <laughs> I eventually brought it to the PRC breach uh, principles of confidentiality because I didn't know what else I could do. And so was that it um, sort of culminating um, in its head there when the ANU sort of took over management of the board? No, so this is probably in January we'd gone to this point. Um, and then eventually, because I was looking at the constitution, um, I, I was, to be honest, I was looking at the role of the chair, um, because the chair is the one driving a lot of these processes. Um, and I was trying to figure out how our constitution also aligned with our honoraria policies, and just kind of, to because our constitution at the time was 77 pages, and I'll openly say terribly drafted. Um, and then I looked at the role of the chair, and um, I realized that you can only be the chair if you were either a current student or graduated within the last six months, or if um, you basically you couldn't be an appointed member. Um, the chair at the time had graduated over a year pr like prior, um, and therefore he could not be the chair. That was my understanding anyways. Um, I contacted um, one of the chair's friends, the previous president. I also, at that time, thought I had a really good working relationship with him. I sent through the sections of the constitution. I asked him for feedback to see if like I was on, like if I was wrong about this, because I didn't want to just directly go to the chair. And, you know, I could understand it's a really sensitive matter. He felt very attached to the uh, association um, and confront him about this. Um, have said he'd get back to me. Um, and then three hours later, the chair still resigned. So, and after that, uh, I had I received a bunch of, in my opinion, abusive emails from him, um, claiming that I was personally attacking him and his legacy and whatnot. Um, and yeah, uh, we had a board meeting the following week um, where uh, it was quite aggressive and very hostile directed towards me. Um, an example, I was uh, questioned about my president's report for I think it was like an hour, an hour and a half to the point where I was asked specific questions such as um, we were providing information to the board about how many uh, student assistance grants we'd allocated and people were asking me why like certain people were being knocked back for their grants and like if we had to change the criteria to make sure that everyone had, like would have a successful application, which doesn't make any operational sense, but it was just supposed to be like quite an unpleasant situation for me. And then at the end, I was accused of bullying uh, the chair, Zill, um, and I was asked to leave. Um, and then um, I think the first ANU submit posting post went up two days later about how I was a dictator and I was looking to remove all these people um, where 
I had no intention of that. The only thing that I really wanted was to ensure that the board didn't invest money that we didn't have any uh, right to invest and that um, potentially there'd be accountability mechanisms for the board. Throughout the entire governance dispute um, leading up to my removal, it was just a question of like, we're accountable to the board, but who is the board accountable to? The answer was no one. And I think a lot of these interpersonal back and forth are, are particularly interesting here uh, because it sounds like this isn't a case of, of well-intentioned actors being caught in tough circumstances. It, it sounds more like there were um, deliberate and, and maybe almost vindictive moves that were, were taken to, to undermine each other. Like, do you think it's, it's an accurate assessment to say things became quite petty or do you think this is just part and parcel in politics at uh, the, the level that PASA operates at? I mean, I'd hope that we can all act with uh, base amounts of respect and dignity. Um, I'm obviously incredibly biased in this because um, uh, I feel like throughout my tenure, I haven't been treated incredibly well. Um, so yeah, look, uh, I, I do think that uh, the previous chairs, because both people I've referred to went on to become chair of the uh, association. I think that they thought they were acting in the organization's best interest. In all honesty, I just think that they lacked the training or skills to really uh, exercise their power effectively. And I also think that um, no one wanted to admit they were wrong. And I mean, some of the issues that uh, came up during the governance dispute, I'm still trying to deal with before um, uh, my tenure ends. Thank you for sharing that, Eve. Have you found that the workload of doing student politics is so o overwhelming that you found your more personal relationships suffering a bit? Or were you capable of balancing these things out quite well? I mean, during the governance dispute, my uh, boyfriend and I of three years broke up um, because he said that he wouldn't mind if I lost my job because it would mean I could focus more on our relationship. Uh, the following day, I got a cat, which is Theodore. Um, and since then, I've moved on with my life. But um, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle to balance their uh, personal and um, vocational commitments. The, the strange thing about uh, student politics as well is that um, a lot of the times that line is blurred. It tends to be a lot less professional than if you were working in a, um, let's say a law firm, or if you're working public policy in that a lot of people uh, I currently work with are my close friends. And some of them were close friends beforehand, which is how you end up running with them on a ticket, or some of them you become friends with over time because um, to be frank, you might have a shitty day and you wanna to complain to someone about uh, a document that just came through. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, even with those friendships you mentioned um, on the board, for instance, when you know you say the board endorsed you prior to, to running, when you, you had to go through all these incidents, do you feel like those, those friendships were, were severed? And uh, more generally, do you think that experience was quite sobering to, to what politics is and, and, and how jaded politics can be at times? Yeah, um... I mean, for the first question, a lot of people I know were put in quite an unfortunate position um, in that they had to effectively pick a side and 
no longer be friends with people they were friends with beforehand. Um, some of those people have been able to uh, reestablish their relationships, but for the most part, that's just been permanently fractured. Um, in relation to the sobering side of politics, um, I'm sure some people do it for the right reason, but I'm always quite uh, cautious of people who have an interest in becoming politicians from the moment they graduate high school. Um, I think it's people who potentially are attracted to power, um, just for having friends who are previously in student politics during undergrad. Um, some people definitely do want to do it for the right reason, and I really commend those people for that. But um, I don't think I could have an interest in uh, politics in the long run. And I commend anyone who has the fortitude to um, follow that and be successful in a way that potentially is, or not potentially is, um, equitable for general members of the public. Uh, a fact that I see rubbing against that is the fact that there's actually quite low participation in student elections, where not a lot of students actually vote. And so if you are wanting to be a, a representative um, pop, uh, politician for the student body, do you ever feel concerned about whether or not you're actually representing the body as a whole rather than that, that small subset of students that actually votes? Yeah, of course. I mean, I guess you can approach this issue uh, from a few, like a few different ways. Um, I would say after you uh, have a position in office, you have an obligation to continue with community consultation. So there are lots of people who I'm sure didn't vote for me um, or didn't vote for members of my team. But that's why you're supposed to attend different social events. Or in my case, I commonly will send out um, emails to uh, our membership about certain issues. So um, ones that are specifically uh, affecting, let's say, HDR students. Um, there have been a lot of students um, in the last year who um, are supposed to uh, receive a Commonwealth uh, scholarship who haven't been able to uh, open an Australian bank account and therefore are completely supporting themselves and they're supposed to be receiving around $29,000 a year. Uh, and they they won't because the university has taken action on this, but uh, they may have had to forgo that entire uh, allotment because they weren't able to identify or like uh, validate their identity. So yes, uh, difficult. I don't think it's a perfect system. I think it's something that you need to continue working on. And that in some ways is what our college representatives are supposed to really focus on as well, because while there are People seem to think that they're uh, somewhat less important to our association. I personally think that they're our front runners. They're the people who are really supposed to be, uh, not to be too um, metaphorical, but like in the trenches, like uh, really engaging with issues uh, on a one-to-one -one level. Um, but I think uh, in regards to how I feel about um, my position as a whole, I think this year has really made me fight with my own inadequacies. Um, I personally, public speak, um, in an ideal world would be very operational, would have someone else be the very, like, be more front-facing. Um, when Naomi, our previous vice president, was in the role, that was really good because she was a lot more charismatic than I am and was really good with engaging with people. Um, I have ideas that I like to, would like to work on in future, but uh, I, I think it's quite difficult not only being a representative voice, but being convincing while doing so. Mm, mm. To close up these interviews, uh, I normally like to ask my guests a question um, on how they would respond to a, a, a specific situation and, and how they would engage with that. And the situation I'm really curious to see how you would navigate uh, based on our, our conversation here is if you had the opportunity to go back to 
Eve, I, I suppose before embarking on this this whole journey with parser and, and, and student politics, do you think you would advise yourself against doing it? Or do you think you would give yourself some comments or, or some pointers? Or what would you say to yourself if you could go back a, a year ago and and have that conversation? I mean, I've got two thoughts on it. Um, one, I probably should have uh, applied for more paralegal positions earlier on just to have that experience for applying for grad jobs now. But um, honestly, I've said throughout all this, it's been an incredibly painful experience. And in some ways, I think I've uh, a lot more burnt out than I've ever been. Um, I lack a lot of motivations and motivation and uh, the panic response I need to study for exams. But I would do the same thing. Um, I think it was the right thing to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, but when uh, I was talking to the PRC about what we should do, I said that it would be an incredibly tumultuous and painful experience, but it should be over within two to three months. That was my estimate. I was correct. Um, all members of the board resigned within two and a half months. Um, and I think it's the right thing for the association in the long run. So fingers crossed that um, the people who uh, take uh, on after uh, my current team will, you know, use the blank slate that we've tried to create for them and uh, try and make a stronger and more representative parsa, but we'll see what happens. Are you optimistic for that future and for the next generations of parsa to come? Yeah, I mean, look, um, student associations by nature are quite uh, chaotic. <laughs> um, so I think things will go well, but I think it'll also take a, probably a year or so to really stabilize. Um, I've met a few of the people who are running this year and they seem lovely in all honesty. Um, so I'm hopeful. Perfect. Eve, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was just so fascinating to hear you talk about all these ups and downs you've been through. And I'm really hoping that a lot of people listening to this leave with a, a stronger understanding of student politics, of, of PASA, and just of what it means to, to represent someone else in a political capacity.